it seems amazing now that we thought that film made in 1895, 96, 97, 1900 was primitive. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It might look primitive if you're just applying the standards of the present day, but actually the more you look at it, the more sophisticated it becomes in the context of around about 1900. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Students of Huxley and Huxley Students. In this episode, we talk about two ways academic groups are changing the field of vintage film. First, Domator, the International Society for the Study of Early Cinema. And then the Media Ecology Project, a new way to research vintage film. Plus, Rob Stone on his and Steve Mass's new book, or books, on comedian Victor Moore. More is what you get when you subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. More smarter and more of it, too. But we need more ratings and reviews at Apple Podcasts. So leave us one, would you? Thanks. You know, that's the most marvelous trick I've ever seen a magician do. You mean the uh, one with the four aces? No, the way you made my club sandwich disappear. Who, me? My dear young lady. I... You better take a club sandwich out of this hat. Are you accusing me of eating your sandwich? You might begin by taking that piece of lettuce off your necktie. The somewhat befuddled fellow in that clip from 1936's Swing Time is Victor Moore. Before his days as a character actor, he was a Broadway star, and for a year he made silent comedies in Florida, as Rob Stone and Steve Massa reveal in their new book from Split Reel, Victor Moore and His Clever Comedies. That's clever and comedies with a K. A Kickstarter for it, already funded, runs through March 8th, and then it will be available to anyone who orders it. Rob Stone, who we last talked to about Split Reel's inaugural book on the pokes and jabs comedies, returns to talk Victor Moore's year in Florida. The way this book came about was that um, uh, Steve Boss and I have this interest in, in films made in Florida. And uh, so we watched a bunch of different ones. You know, of course, the again, go back to Pokes and Jabs, which was based on the all about the Vim Comedy Company. And Vim was down there, and Lubin was down there, and then Van Hauser was down there, Gaumont, a whole bunch of people down there. Well, one of the one of the films we watched was um, uh, a clever comedy, which are the ones that star Victor Moore. And then Steve said, "Well, you know, we've got the Victor Moore." scrapbook at the New York Public Library. And so he got to explore that and come to find out he had, oh, there must have been 125, 150 photos, um, which is a really strange thing to have that many photos from what is a fairly obscure uh, comedy series. Um, 
so between those two things, it was like, well, gee, I like making filmographies and Steve likes writing about people. So between those two <laughs> things, we, we came up with an idea for a, a book and, and it's not, it's, you know, it, it's not a book that's going, you can't use it as a doorstop. Right. You know? <laughs> a couple of my past books, that was the biggest selling factor. Just a smaller book, you know, 128 pages, I think. Um, you kind of get in, get out. We purposefully looked just at Victor Moore's clever comedies. Um, the guy probably does deserve a, a full-fledged, you know, bio- biography to cover his whole career. But um, we just wanted to do the, the one year of, of clever comedies. And so that's kind of what we did. So what year is that? Uh, it runs over, it starts in 16 and ends in 17. And I think a few of the films may came, come out in 18. Uh, but it was right. It was, it was that year. And the thing about it was, you know, he was a, he was a pretty big, um, he's pretty big on the stage. He had worked with George M. Cohen and others on the stage. And then he made a couple features for Paramount, um, kind of between, you know, stage, uh, engagements. So it was kind of a, in a way it was a, an odd thing for him to, to walk away from the stage for a whole year to make these movies. Um, back in those days, uh, the guys making the movies were not necessarily the ones making the money. Right. Um, you know, the stage performers were, um, you know, the big stage performers were the ones still bringing it, they're bringing in the big money. But, uh, for whatever reason, he decided he wanted to, wanted to take a shot at movies. And so, um, so he did. So do you know for sure that he was away from Broadway for a, a straight year? Well, so he started shooting these at, um, in New York. He shot the first few in New York and then, um, actually got on a boat and went down to Jacksonville, Florida and shot one of the films on the boat. The movie starts in New York on the boat and then they get off in Florida and they finish the movie. Um, but they're, but then they're in, they're in Jacksonville, Florida for the better part of a year. Um, yeah, six to eight months. So, yeah, so he was he was absent from stage work for, you know, at least the better part of a year because he's down in Jacksonville. Um, they they eventually did then move from Jacksonville back up to uh, Long Island and 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 shot the last few up in Long Island before they before they stopped the series. And I I think it got stopped because Paramount, who was you know bankroll in the series, and and Victor Moore. Um, I think I think uh, Victor wasn't seeing the kind of profits he wanted, or they weren't. They're were, you know tip, typical studio versus star kind of stuff, and uh, he, he just went he just went back to stage work at that point. Okay, yeah, because he had. I mean, he must have had a decent success with Jimmy Fadden because it has a sequel, which is actually the only silent of his I've actually seen. Um, right. So. I mean, uh, something of the beginnings of a silent movie career, I guess. Um, seems like, you know, not terribly high-budgeted short films is maybe a bit of a step down, but... Yeah, I, I, I think I think maybe the, the, the with a lot of these guys, the probably the appeal was a, a little bit of, you know, self-control. It was a clever comedy company was uh, you know, him, he had backers, of course, and 
people he worked with, but I think he, you know, he was the guy steering the ship. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I'd have to double check, but those short, the, the, the features he shot, um, those undoubtedly were shot up in New York and those may have been shot while he was still doing stage work. Cause that was, right. that was, that was pretty common. They, you know, the stage actors didn't moonlight. They stayed, they daylighted. They, yeah. <laughs> they went, went, went and made movies in the day and then, uh, then did the stage work at night. I mean, the most famous case there was, um, W.C. Fields did a couple films in Yonkers, the um, pool sharks being one of them. Uh, but Ziegfeld thought he was, you know, dogging it at night too much and made him quit making these movies. So he, he would shoot during the day and do stage at night. So right. I, I assume that's what Victor Moore did also. But obviously, once they went to once they went to Florida, uh, he he kind of had to go both feet in on the on the movie only situation. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I don't really know why. I mean, because like I said, he, you know, he. It's not like he wasn't working with top flight people on the stage. You know, George right. Cohen at that point was about as big as you could get, and and even the movies he's making, Paramount wasn't. You know, they weren't quite the heavy heavy hitter they are now, but they were still a, a big company. I mean, if we know him from later movies, he's this sort of befuddled. Uh, character, I always think of him as sort of like a live-action Elmer Fudd. Uh, but what what do you what's his personality in these in the silent era like that? You know, I, if I could draw a parallel, you know, um, I think last last year, uh, Ben Modell through Undercrank Productions and the Library of Congress put out these Edward Everett Horton silence right. that, that he had done. And it's amazing how much their personality remains the same. You know, you add the voice, but they're still, the personality is still very much the same. And I, I think that holds true with Victor Moore. Kind of what you what what you saw is kind of his his typical persona in, in a sound film. That's what you see in the clever comedies. You, you just don't you just don't get the voice and. Uh, but, you know, there are there there are those cases. You know, I mean, obviously Laurel and Hardy, another case where in, they had this persona in silent film, and then when they had voices, it, it was still the same persona, and and that's pretty much uh, you know with Victor Moore, that's, that's kind of what it is. You know, he he's Victor Moore, so it, it's kind of it's kind of nice in that um, to a certain extent you're. It, you're not getting reentered. You're not getting introduced to something new. You're getting re. You know, you're just expanding your your exposure to to somebody who, you know, at least during the golden age of sound film, was was you know a fairly well known you know comedian and character actor. So, all right. So Steve is writing up just kind of the story of that year in Florida, and then you did a filmography for it, or. That yeah, we, yeah, we did a pretty. We tried to do a, a, a detailed account of of you know the comings and goings and and all that, um, and then also of the films themselves. Um, and then there's you know there's there were five or six films that never came out that 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 we discovered that we were able to add to the filmography, which I, I there's there's rumor that those that those actual films may be around, um, but. Uh, yeah, I I like I like books that have filmographies. 
Yeah. I, I, I've, never, I've never really liked a book about a, an actor or something, and then at the end there's a list of titles, or there's not even that. It's like, hey, you made a whole bunch of movies. Um, I, I, I like I like things like you know where they were shot and what when they were released and what the what the the reaction the press was to it and who were in these movies and um, I, I really think that that I, that's just my preference and so that's that, that's what what I do. Okay. And, and it's, and it's actually two books. Oh, um, that again. Because you, cause you <laughs> did that, that again, on pokes, I, pokes and Jabs. Well, I did. You know, with Pokes and Jabs, I had such a wealth of, of stills. Um, I had two or three people who provided me with just a ton of stills. But actually, I could figure out who they, who, you know, one was Dan, Dan Mason's scrapbook. Another one was this actor's name. Ray Godfrey, and then I had I got had access to Babe Hardy's scrapbook huh. and, and Ethel Burton's scrapbook, and it was just like I contacted all these people who had all these you know I, they they let me use photos for the book, and I said, can I publish the rest of these? Because they said, yeah, what what who, where else when else are they going to get used? <laughs> yeah. And so the same thing, and and to tell you the truth, um, the festivals I've been to selling the book, people love that second book. Um, it's, it's, it's called the Pokes and Jacks picture book, but it's just, it's mostly just pictures. So with, with this book, there's going to be the clever comedies picture book, uh, which again, is all, all these stills that, from the movies. I mean, that it's another thing I, in addition to liking film books that have, um, filmographies, I like film books that have photos, you know, I, my my first book I wrote eons ago, Laurel or Hardy. I tried to get a photo from every movie, and that was four hundred and some odd movies, half of which don't even exist anymore. And you know, I got maybe seventy or seventy five percent there, which was you know, I think that was fairly decent accomplishment at the time. But um, but now with these films, it's just the opposite. It's like we had like eight eight. Uh, eight stills for one of the shorts. And it's like, you can't put, <laughs> you got two, you got two or three pages of, 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 you know, words about the short. You can't have eight pages of photographs. It just, the balance of the book goes away. So, so we have this extra book, you know, and it's, it's 10 bucks. And if you want to see a whole lot more pictures of Victor Moore, you, you've got them. And if, if you don't, then. And who wouldn't, I ask you. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, at, at, to me, to me, the thing is, you you run into somebody who's got a, a stack of stills. You want to flip through the stills, right? You know? Sure. Yeah. Next, next best to get to watch some of this stuff is getting to look through the stills. Um, we, yeah, let's talk about watching some of this stuff. What's their survival rate? Well, unfortunately, there's not a they're not a great survival rate. There are, um, I think five that survive. And again, I think there's these three or three or four others that have been rumored about that I have not been able to confirm. But as, but of the ones that were released, and there were a, give or take fifty released, uh, released. There were only like there's only like five, five or six that survived, and uh, a couple of those have only been in recent years that we've we've discovered. Um, there may be more. You know, sometimes if you, you kind of have to you know, kind of spark people's interest to, uh, sure. to, 
you know, then they start digging around in their, in their film collections or wherever, and a few more pop up, but the ones that survived, they, 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 they're strong. They're strong. They should, they show that he, 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 he had a, a knack for this and, uh, it, it, it's a shame there aren't more of them around. Right. So he was really making like one a week. They, yeah, pretty much, pretty much one a week. Yeah. Is, is kind of kind of the the thing they did, um, and that that was you know, that was fairly typical for most of the companies, at least down in Florida. But you know, what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. yeah okay, it's 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 nineteen sixteen Florida. It's not you know. Yeah. It's not like you hop over to Kennedy Space Center and check they're, it out. Or something. They're still waiting to invent the golf course at that point, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, you know, they obviously went to Florida because New York in the winter is not the best place to film when you have to rely on daylight because you know the the early film makers had to do it outside mostly, and um, it, but it you know Florida kind of. You know, if almost by a flip of a coin, it could have been Florida instead of Hollywood. Um, I think Jack Jacksonville had a really good shot at being the place, but then kind of the um, the anti-film people won the won the mayoral election, I think, in whatever it was, nineteen seventeen, and kind of pushed pushed the film folk out. So, good job. I, mean, I could never quite understand that they didn't like the fact that some of these because um, they were film people. You know, they were actors, they're, they're, you know, artistic people. So, um, it was known that occasionally they would cohabitate without the benefit of clergy. Shocking. Which, yeah. And, and I always thought, well, okay, I could see they're very, you know, conservative down there until I read that Jacksonville had a red light district. <laughs> so yeah. like, well, wait, wait a minute. You had a whole area of town for carousing and yet these folks that, you know, maybe didn't stay in their own boarding house room all night, uh, were, were such shocked to the system. Yeah. It was kind of, kind of odd, but you know, I guess Hollywood sounds better than Jacksonville, you know, yeah. who, who ranked for Jacksonville. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but it was, it was a big hopping place there for, you know, four or five, six years. Hmm. All right. So Victor Moore and his clever comedies, uh, any idea what the next uh, split reel book might be? Well, I can tell you some of the stuff that's coming up. I can't tell you the order. Okay. <laughs> I don't quite know. Um, the the next kind of major work um, is presenting Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew. Oh, nice. Um, this will be written by Rob Farr. Farr, sure. And uh, and he's a man. He is digging. And this isn't going to be a quick telling of his vitagraph of Sidney Drew's vitagraph comedies. We're back in the 1880s with his the beginning of his of his um, stage career, and you know the miss the first Mrs. Drew Gladys Rankin, and then you know the the then hit the, his film career, and then you know when he passes away, Mrs. Drew's film career. It's a very deeply researched book, and. He is, you know, Sidney Drew and, you know, Mrs. Drew, Lucille McVeigh, um, McVeigh, they, they were good. I mean, some of my favorite comments, some of my favorite oh, yeah. silence ever 
are Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drews because he just had such a twist to his humor. And, you know, and the fact that later, later as their kind of, as, as their uh, relationship built and then he started to be, you know, age a bit, um, she took over more and more of the writing and the directing. And she, but by, by the time he had passed away, she was, she was quite an accomplished film director herself. So there's, there's all kind there's all kinds of twists to that story. Um, then uh, there's a couple other things we're working on that, that are not completely, totally um, um, nailed down. Um, but I think by the end of the year, we will, after 25 years, have a refresh on um, Laurel or Hardy because I think it, it, it needs it. People have actually asked me, when are you going to revise that first book? And so uh, <laughs> it's actually what, I was, actually what I was doing today. I was, I was, it was, today was a labor of love because I was going through the Jimmy Aubrey comedies and ah. making, <laughs> uh, Jimmy Aubrey. Uh, but anyhow, um, and then, you know, then we're, we're, we're looking at doing some more of these littler books too, you know, cause, um, sometimes there's a subject matter that, that, that's worth spending 125, 150 pages on that's not necessarily, uh, 800 merit, pages, yeah. Merit, 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 so, you know, a, a doorstop quality book so the kickstarter for victor moore and his clever comedies runs through march 8th Links for it will be in the show post at nightreveal.com. The stereotype has it that movie buffs and film academics have wildly different ways of approaching film history. Academics write about structuralism and Godard, and movie buffs obsess about seeing every movie Leo Gorsi ever made. Well, maybe there's some truth to that at either extreme, but many heroes of our film heritage, like William K. Everson, had a foot in both worlds. The reality, in my experience, as shown by what we've talked about on this podcast, is that the academic world is full of people who love movies and want to share them. By preserving and restoring film, like Scott McQueen at UCLA did with Mystery of the Wax Museum, in innovative research and programming, like Cinema's First Nasty Women, and by creating tools to help researchers, like the Media History Digital Library. So that's what the next two segments in this episode are about. How the world of academia is helping us all explore our film history heritage. I'll start by talking with two leading film studies academics, Tammy Williams, Associate Professor of English and Film Studies at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and Ian Christie, Professor of Film and Media History at Birkbeck College, University of London. She's the current president, and he's a vice president, of Domator, 
the International Society for the Study of Early Cinema, which promotes the study of film before 1915. Domitor, I know, meets at Portononi, which I imagine, you know, people in robes meeting in a medieval hall somewhere. Uh, but I assume, I assume that's not strictly true. So, um, yeah, tell me, what is Domitor and what are you up to? So, Domitor actually used to meet in a medieval church. <laughs> um, but uh, we... But people were saying, oh, that's uh, not doing anything for modernizing our image, which is, I think, actually really, you know, about an organization that is about a period of, of uh, you know, in which cinema is emerging um, during uh, this period of modernity. So uh, we actually now meet uh, right next to the, the, the theater in Pordenone for, for our General Assembly in the Moderno Hotel. <laughs> in a very modern room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think we ought to we ought to say, I mean, in one sense, you know, the um, the experience of the last few years um, has actually, I think, brought some new things into Domitor. I mean, we've had problems because we couldn't have our traditional, you know, uh, conference every two years in person, but it's also given us a kind of wider network. Uh, which is good. We've we've had Absolutely, more people yeah. joining online, and I think it's it's kind of helped. In my sense is it's helped to move Domitor from being what I used to describe as a a bunch of uh, rapidly aging old men <laughs> to being something much much more varied, much more open, much more geographically dispersed, and so forth. And 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 that that has to be a good thing for the future of of silent cinema. Definitely. Our first online conference, which was supposed to take place in Paris, and uh, because of the pandemic we, we met online, we ended up having people from over, I think, 23 different countries uh, logging in to to, uh, to attend the conference. And so, yeah, it's great. And uh, we actually have an upcoming election here, and our, our candidates are from Brazil, Mexico, Romania, France, Italy, um, and the and Sweden. So it's really nice. We're really becoming fully international. Well, let's go back to how it started. Um, I guess in 1985 in Portnone, some people, including some reasonably, I, I hate to say famous names, uh, given the general <laughs> obscurity of this topic. Uh, but yeah, people like Tom Gunning and Paolo Cerchi Usai, or Usai, I don't know how to pronounce that. You know, they, they were involved in sort of starting this. And what was the idea behind it? Well, I think the, the idea was to, to, to bring together this um, tribe of early cinema fanatics um, who, you know, the thing about early cinema is that there aren't too many um, addicts in any one place. Yeah. <laughs> They're quite a dispersed tribe of people, and it's very international. Uh, there, are, there are people who've been you know, involved with very early cinema in many countries, particularly you know, France and Italy, certainly, uh, America, of course, uh, Britain. But how to bring them together? And I think the, the founding idea, of course, of, of Domitor was to, to, to bring them together, give them some sort of sense of identity, and um, try to promote this growing interest in very early film, 
which you know is relatively recent. I mean, I often date it from uh, Kevin Brownlow, who I think is you know one of our kind of patron saints. Yeah. When, when when Kevin Brownlow did the restoration of Napoleon uh, back and, and launched it back in in the um, early eighties, that really put silent cinema on the map. But early film, which is earlier than that didn't really have a sort of founding moment. It had a bunch of people like Tom Gunning, as you've described, and um, uh, André Gaudreau from, from uh, um, Montreal, who yeah. were coming forward with some really, really important ideas. And what they lacked was a sort of central vehicle for getting these ideas out to a wider public. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's important to note that also, um, well, I guess there is, there is, there are probably many founding moments, um, just as there was for cinema, but um, there's, there was the, uh, in 1978, the International Federation of Film Archives held a congress in Brighton, England, and that was seen as being one of the key moments uh, where there was, there was a symposium on the cinema of, from 1900 to 1906, and uh, Tom Gunning and Andrew Gaudreau and uh, other people that were there uh, were, um, I think, particularly interested, I think John Gartenberg was there, and Christopher Horak, um, Manuel Toulet, um, they were very much interested in uh, this period that had kind of been looked at as, the, uh, I think Mel Birch called it the, the primitive period, right? And and Gunning uh, is what it is, was on the forefront of calling it uh, the cinema of attractions, um, something that it was, he he recognized that it was doing something very unique and particular, and that it did, that was not uh, narration. And uh, Godreau talks about um, attraction versus narration, and so that was sort of a, a really a key moment, I think, in '78. And then Domator, as an organization, was of course founded in 1985 at Portonone, where I think probably in large part because Paolo Carcuzzi was based there, and uh, he's uh, one of the founders of the Portonone International Film Festival, if not uh, International Silent Festival, if not the, the, the founder of that festival. And so that's why that became a home for us. But of course, it, as Ian says, it's greatly evolved. Um, it's been, it's quite incredible. Um, I, I mean, I think Ian and I both joined around uh, 2012 when the first conference was in Britain. Maybe, uh, Ian, you might have been there a little bit before me. And uh, and we've, uh, we had a, a conference in Brighton that was almost a hundred anniversary conference. And since then we've had conferences in Chicago, the image in early cinema. Uh, two years later in Stockholm, we had a conference on corporality in cinema. In early cinema, Viscera Skin and Physical Form is the name of, of the, the subtitle of, the, of the, the book that came out of that. Uh, and then uh, Provenance in early cinema, the George Eastman Museum in Rochester. And then uh, in 2020, Paris, which was our first online conference, and 2022, um, we just had, uh, it was supposed to be at the Library of Congress uh, in Culpeper, Virginia, but also turned out to be a, a very uh, productive uh, virtual conference on copyrights, uh, copies and rights in early cinema. So, um, and we're looking forward to our next conference in Vienna on 
early cinema and the other arts or uh, avant l'avant-garde. Uh, so it's very it's a it's a it's a very rich field, and we've we haven't run out of uh, angles <laughs> or uh, themes uh, to explore. Um, and actually, just uh, your conversation with Ian right before we got started makes me think. Well, maybe migration is is a a good topic as well. Um, as we expand and hope that maybe our next our next conference will neither be in Europe or the U.S., but possibly in another country like Mexico, or you know, really uh, to really start expanding out. Now, tell me about. Uh... Why early film? What's what's the interest in that, and why did you set a or you know your pre- predecessor set nineteen fifteen as kind of the end point? <laughs> Take that one. <laughs> That's a slightly controversial subject. Should we have an end point? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I I very I very much belong to the uh, the uh, party that thinks that we we actually shouldn't have an end point, and uh, there's a there are a number of reasons for that. One reason is that um, you know cinema evolved differently in different countries, and so if you take something like 1915 as your sort of cutoff point, that may be okay for France, uh, for Britain, for America. But what about you know countries in in Asia, where cinema didn't really start until much later, um, or Latin America? So in all of in in the, the more you broaden your focus, the more yeah. you start to take in the whole world, the more you have to think in relative terms. Well, Japan, for instance, another very good example. I mean, film doesn't really start in Japan until quite a bit later. And what we would call early film actually goes on for longer in Japan. Right. <laughs> and, and, and Russia, too, of course, it would be another good example of that. So, but anyway, going back to you know, your question, why early film? I think... Um, Tammy really kind of mentioned the key point. Once upon a time, not so very long ago, people used to talk about primitive film. And it seems amazing now that we thought that film made in 1895, 96, 97, 1900 was primitive. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It might look primitive if you're just applying the standards of the present day, but actually the more you look at it, the more sophisticated it becomes in the context of around about 1900. So I think it's been a process of saying, hold on, let's not get carried away by all the exciting things that began to happen in the teens and the 20s and the 30s. Let's just keep our eyes fixed for long enough on the very early period to discover what was really going on. And it's been very, very rich and very rewarding. Yeah, I think one of the things is we assume that all film is heading toward the two-hour feature dramatic film. But actually, film did all the things that different visual media do now. The news that's on the news was in a cinema then. The animation was in cinema. Just different kinds of playfulness and comedy. TikTok videos were on 35mm film in 1895. So... there's there's all kinds of things that don't necessarily funnel into becoming an MGM feature in 1946. Even beyond that, and that's something that, you know, some of our, our partners that we work with have helped us to kind of 
connect with is that, of course, as you mentioned, like everything that's happening on YouTube and TikTok and all these things were happening already. Cat videos were, were there <laughs> um, from the early days. Um, but also what uh, Dan Streibel calls orphan films. And there are, are films that, are, are, that weren't made necessarily for theatrical release, all of those types of films. Uh, we see those early on too. Um, films that were made for educational purposes or um, lecture circuits and travelogues and uh, advertising films. Um, all of those things were present early on. And, and so by really focusing in on that, on those kinds of tendencies and asking uh, questions about the very essence of the medium itself as it as it emerged, we can see not only was all of that present there, but we can then take those questions and kind of use them. As Anne said, you know, maybe we don't want to have a 1915 cutoff because there are other other nationals or other cinemas in other parts of the world that are emerging later, um, and and those questions are still. Uh, important, but also um, those. I, I think that we can apply those questions to films that come out later, um, past that period, past the late teens, into the late silent cinema period uh, in the twenties. And our, our founders did kind of set that cutoff at 1915, and we've kind of been pushing it forward over the years to about 1918. <laughs> but um, but now, you know, we think, well, what about um, cinemas that are really getting their start in the early thirties, you know, uh, in other parts of the world. So we, we don't have any strict cutoff at all. No, no, um, I think it's I, really about the questions that we ask. I, th I think that's the key thing, but I, th I think, you know, mentioning TikTok and, and, and YouTube is really important actually, because uh, I'm, I'm old enough <laughs> to remember how uh, the business of early film was back in the days before digital. And believe me, it was very difficult. Um, if you go right back into, you know, the, 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 the 60s and the 70s, trying to show early film, silent film even, was really difficult because you had to choose what speed to show it at. Right. And you only had two. No, but you had only two speeds. Right. Like you could show it silent speed or sound speed. That's how, how projectors were. And the coming of digital, well, the coming of video, first of all, and then the coming of digital has been absolute magic as far as getting people involved with early film is concerned because it's so easy now to show people a piece of early film you can you know you can show it to them on your phone and that's yeah. been a huge gift and i find that when i talk to young people i mean seriously young people school kids about early film they get it because they're yeah. used to short formats. They're used to things that are offbeat, jokey. Uh, a lot of the grammar of early film, if we can call it that, uh, makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot more sense to very young people who've grown up in the digital era than it does to, let's say, middle-aged and older people. Right. It's re really <laughs> interesting. We've kind, of, we've kind of come to a, a paradise situation <laughs> where there's a young audience out there that is not put off by the things that used to put people off when they you know, thought of it as primitive. What kind of activities is Domator involved with to and in and to what end in terms of promoting the idea of of early film? There's, I mean, there are a lot of things. I guess we we did mention that there are are biennial uh, conferences. So every two years we have a conference, um, and we have a blog called Snapshots. We um, 
And we have uh, we give awards to uh, graduate students who are working or, or uh, early you know scholars who are working on uh, early cinema topics. Um, but uh, and, and we we publish. Uh, I know you had uh, the Media History Digital Library sure. project people and Eric Hoyt and um, you know we we have our we publish journals or we we, we uh, put lots of these things on our, our website. But actually, I think Ian is the person to talk to you about. Um, uh, one of the things that he helped create, and that was a student workshop, yep. um, graduate student workshop. Well, I think, you know, one of the challenges, um, I, I've watched film studies kind of grow up and become, a, you know, a serious academic uh, business, uh, which is good, but also has its downside <laughs> because yeah. um, a lot of people... Um, who want to make a career in in film studies let's say they feel they have to specialize and they have to specialize perhaps in something that is um has got a wide following horror studies right i had a conversation for instance the other day with with somebody who said you know the growing field in film is horror studies okay um that would seem to cut out early film <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't of course um i was i was talking to colleague he's a former student of mine who's now running a university department and he was saying you know he introduces very early examples of horror regularly because it's actually one of the ways of breaking down prejudice about i don't want to watch a, a silent film so we want to draw younger scholars younger students into early film and show them that they can they can have a career in it so one of the things we've been doing, as, as Tammy mentioned, is we, when we can, we've been running workshops, student workshops, as part of our conferences, aimed at capturing the attention of the rising generation and saying, look, there are all these exciting things you can do. Um, think about this as a direction you really might want to specialize in. And just one other thing about that. Early film is a very hands-on business, much more so than you know, um, other forms of cinema. You you can get involved in aspects of presentation, even restoration with early film, uh, and you, the apparatus of early film, the actual business of cameras, equipment, etc., is much more hands-on than a lot of areas of cinema. So I think yeah. that's a that's a real attraction. It kind of it plays to the interest that we have today in doing things that are more practical and not just cerebral or academic hands-on in what way like what kind of things you know showing film i mean showing uh film in the kind of situation that early film was shown in there's a yeah. there's an event there's an event that happens at the bologna cinema ritrovato festival um uh, in the open air which uses the fact that mo most people today have never seen what projectors were like back in the yeah. period before 1930 carbon, carbon arc, arc projection yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and the carbon arc projector is a great flaming monster <laughs> with, with light leaking out of it on all sides and it's red hot inside because it, the the light comes from you know uh, two rods of carbon that with the electrical current between them causing this intensely bright light what happens when you watch a carbon arc projection is you're, you're certainly watching the film on the screen but you're actually as interested in the spectacle of the projection itself and that yeah. is a whole different dimension to our experience of cinema we live in a world where most of our films come out of a digital box um 
and we there we never we have no contact with the actual mechanism that delivers the the um, the image on and the sound on the screen. But I think uh, um, early cinema takes us back to, if you like, the the practical, the the haptic, the the sense of where is this image coming from and what's making it move, and that that I think is quite exciting. And again, I think people today who are perhaps a little bit um, over they've got too much digital in their lives are quite interested in this <laughs> also um i'd like to say that there is something that i find that's so incredibly rich and even thinking about uh, you know today in, in the wake of um hashtag me too and um and uh black lives matter um there's there's been a return to looking at these early films more expansively even beyond um uh, archival, well, beyond technological aspects and beyond um, strictly formal aspects. And there's been a real opening up to looking at um, different kinds of, of alternative, nonconformist, anti-institutional representations and points of view um, by underrepresented artists. And so yeah. uh, one of our uh, board members, uh, Maggie Hannefeld, uh, along with another uh, Dometra member, Laura Horak and, and also uh, archivist um, Elif Ranjan Pinaki, uh, they have just uh, released a four DVD set with 99 um, silent films, most of them early films. Um, it's called Cinema's First Nasty Women. Uh, this is one of the many collaborations that Domator has helped um, uh, facilitate, um, also with the Portanoni International Silent Film Festival. And so looking at um, not only uh, directors getting away from that kind of autorial focus and looking at actresses and women uh, in particular that, or, uh, you know, women and men cross-dressing, uh, you know, men dressed as women and vice versa, and, and uh, African-American actresses, Native American actresses, uh, like, like, uh, Actress Bertha Augustus and Laughing Gas, and uh, a port, uh, Edward Porter film from 1907, which completely explodes our understanding of caricature agency in America's early segregated film industry, or uh, films with um, Native American actresses like Minnie Devereaux, um, who worked with Mabel Normand and uh, Fatty Arbuckle, um, who um, change our, our thinking about uh, the use of you know red face um and uh because they're actually using native actors you know they, they change our thinking about that early period as being you know strictly using those kinds of, of uh, racist um uh, practices but you know in in fatty and mini hee with uh uh with Minnie Devereaux, it completely challenges indigenous stereotypes uh, and also indigenous female agency. It shows indigenous sexual desire. Uh, there's, they're just, the films are incredible from that period. Uh, those are early films from 19, uh, 1907 to 1914. Uh, and so there's just so much. It's just such an incredibly rich period. Yeah, as I said earlier, there's just no and to, you know, it's just incredibly, there's just so much to look at. And, and, and so much to discover. I think it's, it's really interesting that you, you mentioned, you know, the importance of discovering female um, agency, as it were, in, 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 in early cinema, because um, there was just so much to discover. 
And uh, there's more to discover in the early period yeah. because it's so little documented than there is in the later period. There are things that you can't just go and look up on IMDb. <laughs> there are things where you have to right. kind of um, go digging in the old trade papers. And, and that's also very important. Digitization yeah. of sources means that the kind of thing which uh, even you know, 15 or 20 years ago would have taken a lifetime of research in newspaper libraries now you can do from your computer screen yeah. and i don't think we've really kind of tapped into well some people have but but not enough people yet have realized what you can discover just through the the mass digitization of of you know early records that go back uh, 150 years or so this has been a real um encouragement to do new research and make new discoveries and also many archives are now digitizing these films and i was just so happy that we were able to get in 1921 slightly out of our our period um uh, do that film um digitized and to be able to show it and project it uh, here in in the u.s in milwaukee where i where i'm based um just a, a week ago that would never so that never would have been possible even a couple of years ago um, to digitize and and release you know to 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 send a digital feed of a film um, across the world or a digital file uh, in that way and yeah so I think the archives uh, the the paper archives but also the film archives are also uh, helping to facilitate this and make things available. Um, the Cinémathèque Française has their uh, platform platform called Henri, um, which is um, it's a, a a platform that shows all all kinds of, of, of films, and they, they did sh feature some of the uh, a Domator uh, copyright program um, just it, this past June. Um, so those films can be seen online. There there are many different. Uh, groups that we work with, Kennington Bioscope and Henri um, in, at the Cinémathèque Française that are also helping to get films out there in their, you know, true archival form alongside the many um, uh, forms that we see in, on YouTube and elsewhere. So, yeah, it's just like it's completely changed and within, I think, every year, every year or two, um, it's becoming much more accessible and uh, yeah, there's just so much to be discovered that I think it's a new kind of renaissance period um, for, for research on early cinema. Yeah, I think a you know a big change running running a discussion site with a lot of you know sort of amateurs in the, in the old sense of you know people who who love a subject you know they're not affiliated with any sort of institution they may or may not have any sort of project or outlet for for their their research but they now have this ability to to dig into stuff that will spawn books and articles and you know programs in different places at different times. I mean, it's just the accessibility. I mean, I kind of think back on my early days discovering this kind of film, and there were basically 50 movies that we all saw. And it's just so much broader now. Yeah. You know? Right. And I'm glad you said that, Mike, because I think, you know, early cinema is the one branch of, if you like, uh, film love and film study where non-professional people have actually played a huge part. 
most yeah. of the major discoveries in to do with the very beginnings of cinema have been made by people who were not uh, academics, not salaried researchers of any kind. They were doing it out of sheer enthusiasm. And that, that continues to be the case. It's it's very important that we don't kind of professionalize early film out of existence. <laughs> yeah. We have to keep it open for people who are yeah. have no wish to become academics, no wish to become, <laughs> um, you know, uh, professional uh, film historians. But but they bring to the field a passion, and that's really important, I think, and a lot of knowledge yeah. too, knowledge acquired over a lifetime. Absolutely, and yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think that's. A really good point to make is that, you know, people can join Domitor and become members. Um, just a, uh, an individual uh, reduced rate membership, for example, for um, students or retired or um, underemployed persons. For $40, you have a 24-month membership, so that's $20 a year. Um, <laughs> you can become a member of Domitor and be part of, we have this incredibly exciting uh listserv that is uh, always you know there's so many questions and it's all of these um, experts who are uh, either you know uh, archivists or scholars or just independent scholars or just uh, people who love cinema or love early cinema and we get just incredible things happening on the listserv um, you know just people say oh can anyone identify this film or, or this image or you know, can you can you tell me? Um, you know, does can anyone tell me uh, any? Is there any uh, sausage making sausage factory films or you know whatever whatever the topic is? And yeah, there will just be you know dozens of emails coming in to that or that listserv and that and that conversation just expands and we discover yep. something new. Yeah, um, it's a it's a live subject. I mean, I'll give you a very good example of that. It just happened. We have a long running uh, query on on our website about a particular image, um, and people have been bouncing emails about it around for for weeks now. You know, where does this image come from? The man who's actually solved it, uh, an Englishman, Tony, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. has solved it because he has a an encyclopedic knowledge of a certain range of early film, which he's built up through, you know, um, first-hand research. He doesn't even have his own computer, Tony. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a very illuminating example. I'm, I'm working with him at the moment yeah. to, because we're going to do a presentation together about early film studios. And he just said to me the other day, um, he said, by the way, I don't have my own computer. So if you can help me actually kind of put together this presentation, that would be really helpful. But it's Tony who has solved this problem that has people on several continents scratching their heads. (laughs) That does not happen in modern film because we have all the tools to look things up and uh, make comparisons. But with early film, it continues to happen. Yeah, it's really, it's great. It's just such a lovely community. Yeah, it's that. And uh, I hope that anyone listening to this will consider, you know, checking it out because it's, I know the name is a little bit funny. Domitor. Yeah, tell us where where the name comes from. Well, Ian, do you want to take that? Yeah, okay. Well, you know, this thing that we call cinema, which kind of comes from uh, the cinematograph. I mean, I know you Americans uh, call it movies and et cetera, et cetera, but you know yeah. what cinema is. So that comes from that comes from the Lumiere brothers, or rather their father, to be more precise, deciding to call the apparatus they invented in 1895 a cinematograph. And that, that got 
turned into cinema in in English. But actually, that wasn't their first choice of name. Uh, the original name they had for this thing that they'd created in 1895 was Domitor. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's a path not chosen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's an ironic title for the organization, you know, because it leads to the question, why the hell do you call it Domitor? Right. <laughs> and the answer, I think, is quite interesting. It could have been Domitor. Right. I'm going down to see the Domitor tonight. <laughs> A link for Domator's site, which will lead to lots of other links, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Imagine if you were doing research on historical materials, but you could collaborate with everyone who's ever used those historical materials in the past. That's one of the ideas behind the Media Ecology Project, a digital lab started at Dartmouth University, which aims to make moving image collections not only available for research in themselves, but also to allow researchers to contribute their insights to the archival materials so that future users can access them, like finding another scholar's notes in the margins of a book. The director of the project is Professor Mark Williams, whom I met last year at Portnone when Dwight Cleveland, the poster and lobby card collector we talked to at Nitrateville Radio last year, introduced us. Williams is involved with the digitization of Cleveland's massive collection. I spoke with Professor Williams from Hanover, New Hampshire, about how the Media Ecology Project is changing how scholars will research vintage film. So Media Ecology Project is a digital humanities project that evolved in relationship to a very ambitious project called Project Bamboo. Uh, people at University of Chicago and UC Berkeley. And they brought together a lot of people from not only this country, but other countries, following basic premises, which are absolutely true. Number one, most Digital tools have been made for the sciences. Number two, there's going to be a crying need for digital tools in the arts and humanities. And three, if every institution tries to do everything, we're doomed. We have to work collaboratively and think forward. Right. So uh, when Dartmouth was asked to send a small team, they they asked me to be part of that team. I was glad to go. And the bamboo people said, fantastic, welcome, you got seven minutes, what does your field need? <laughs> said, well, I live and work in rural New Hampshire, I want more access to my stuff. So we we started devising uh, a project about getting access to archival content online. By chance, just a few weeks later, I was invited to my first AMIA conference, which is the Association of Moving Image Archivists, right. put up like these four slides from Project Bamboo and said, oh, and by the way, we just kind of invented this new project, and I thought this would be an ideal audience to talk to. The panel was great, good Q&A, and after the panel, like four archivists made a beeline for me and said, tell us about those last slides. 
we want to hear about those last lines. And that's where the real energy came from, was working with actual professional archivists who recognize that in many ways they're treading water. They have so much work to do. That evolved into a series of NEH grants to build um, what we call a semantic annotation tool, the SAT, which allows you to make time-based annotations like subclips of videos and describe what's in there. Is there an actor? Is there an action? Is there a famous place? Is, you know, what's, what's distinctive about this time-based annotation? And that puts us in a position to greatly enhance search and discovery within an individual archive and ideally across archives. And that's a huge value add. So the elevator pitch for Media Ecology Project is if we uh, obtain access to archival content, we have tools and a lot of interest in the academic community to grow new scholarship about that content. It could be traditional scholarship, could be some newfangled computationally derived scholarship. We're open to both and we're actually helping to build some tools for the latter. All of which will grow the field, of course, which is not a bad thing, uh, but also adds value back to the archive. So we're really working to help serve the archives to not just say, gimme, 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 but also to, you know, do you have this and can I use it? But then we give something back, just take some time to annotate and so forth. And the archives are open to harvest any or all of that metadata. Now, when you say archival content, is that mostly films or are there other kinds that you're looking at? Well, it started it started with films. So we've, we've been happily very successful getting some grants. And two of the biggest grants came from the NEH about very different objects of study. One was about very early film motion pictures and one was about post-World War II and several decades after uh, civil rights news film, primarily from television stations. Okay. Very different topics, similar kinds of approaches, you know, very different sets of scholars, et cetera, but get access to a lot of great things and develop new kinds of scholarship that um, can, you know, jumpstart a lot of new research questions. And that's, that's one of the secret sauces to the project is we like working with materials that are, that are not already overly familiar. Um, we've got a great group of films from the I Institute in Amsterdam. They've, they've been restoring all those 68 millimeter biograph camera right. films that are extant. And then, you know, some of the material that I'm extremely interested in is materials that are actually uh, paper materials but represent a lot of films that otherwise are lost. So the, the, the big get for Library of Congress was the paper prints, and they've been digitizing the paper prints uh, at a really good clip and even improving uh, the resolution and the quality. But a couple of the, the other collections that we're delighted to be uh, working with is American News Group and Biograph, which, of course, was one of the two really big American companies back in the day, produced exhibitor catalogs, paper catalogs, in which they 
uh, would list on every page four different films, and for each film, they would have three keyframes, frames that seemed indicative of the film and maybe uh, were visually interesting. Sure. And they they made those catalogs for their first 3,000 films. I don't even know how many of those films are lost, but it's the majority of them. But we have visual information of those lost films and honestly got frame grabs right. of those lost films. And that's the kind of thing that I find just incredibly inspiring. And, and you know, we'll see exactly what we can do with those frames in this new digital era. But one of the things that we have innovated, there's, there's six volumes of those, the first five best copies are from Museum of Modern Art. Uh, they've allowed us to take those individual frames. We have them, you know, scanned high quality. And, and we've been able to make these little mini animated uh, reconstructions of those frames. They're really more like a magic lantern slideshow. Yeah, not really <laughs> yeah. a movie. Uh, they're, they're still marvelous. And, you know, you're, you're bringing them back to life in a sense. And to me, that's the governing metaphor of all of our work is re-enchanting. This comes from a theorist named Bernard Spiegler, re-enchanting our relationship to history. I had been introduced to Dwight through my excellent colleague at the University of Chicago, uh, Allie Field. And we were in conversation about a small but very select group of his lobby cards, not, not the posters, but lobby cards. That conversation, you know, kind of went up and down. And then I had the chance to meet Dwight. I think it was just last summer. It seems like, you know, COVID just messes with your sense of time. Um, in New York at the Women and Silent Screen Conference. It's held every other year. And it was at Columbia, and Dwight is an alumnus. So I'm there, and I'm there to talk about Media Ecology Project, and I actually get to meet Dwight, and we hang out a little bit and, you know, strike up a, an actual relationship. He really liked my presentation and saw that what, what we're trying to do in developing new computational approaches to things. Uh, and at the end of the conference, he said, so, Mark, I know we've talked about this smallish set of lobby cards. I don't, I don't think we're going to do that, but what would you say to 10,000 violent neurolobby cards? I know digital humanities likes to work with scale. I said, yes, that's true. So what would you say to 10,000? And I said, giddy up. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that really got the conversation going. And it's going to take a while to digitize these cards, but it will, they will obviously eventually become part of this early cinema compendium. Not in time for the end of the grant, but it's you know almost too good to be true, and and exactly the kind of material that we love to work with. Now, when um, something is cataloged, I mean, I assume some of it's just like or not cataloged uh, exactly, but when something is annotated, the way you say, I mean, part of that I'm sure is just oh, here's Lillian Gish in this from this frame to this frame, but what other kinds of things? do you catalog or I'm sorry, annotate? Well, we're, yeah, yeah. We're kind of working with the individual scholars and what their research interests are. 
and this is a part of what I was referring to as the secret sauce of the project a little bit, is that we're not going to, we, we don't imagine that we will only be working with a given film, for example, one time. We will continue to generate new research questions, and especially as the tools change, we'll uh, do that even further. But there's a lot of attention to, as you might imagine, uh, performance styles and how they changed. You know, so when movies are invented, 19th century, late 19th century performance styles are very, very carefully studied and taught. And there's a, there's a grammar of acting on the stage such that you will express what's essential to the back row of the theater, no matter how big the theater is. And it's very mannered and, you know, elegant, but it's not what would happen when you put a movie camera in front of somebody, right? right. That dramatically changes how people are going to perform. And it's an uneven and not especially linear change that occurs. So it's very, very rich in terms of different approaches to it. Um, so we hear in the in the early cinema companion, there's several people working on performance style issues and trying to think about uh, the use of different digital tools in that regard or not. You know, there are people, I mean, you know, the, the literature about early cinema, there are people talking about different kinds of uh, formal changes in terms of multi-shot films and editing and so forth. We've got Charlie Muster writing a big old essay um, that's kind of meta-historiographic about how the field of early cinema studies has emerged in different ways and what different emphases are. One of the resources we're going to have in the in the compendium is a a new digitized scan of his important Edison book. So that you know we're bringing some we're bringing a lot of materials in relationship to one another that will greatly uh, simplify and enhance the availability of a lot of different early cinema materials to. Right. Uh, we just initiated a new grant that has nothing to do with either of the NEH grants, except that it's another step for us. And that is going to work with some new machine reading software that does pose estimation. So this is kind of newfangled, but you, you've seen, you know, the the extras on. Lord of the Rings movie or something. <laughs> yeah. Motion capture things with the ping pong balls and sure. all that. So that's that's capturing new motion and then making it readily available to um, enhance digitally. This new these new softwares and they're not a hundred percent effective, but they produce those kind of skeletons on existing footage. So this is like a whole new ball game in terms of thinking about performance and thinking about mise-en-scene and thinking about, you know, a lot of different changes over the history of moving images. So we, we have a new grant from the Mellon Foundation that's going to be um, playing with those kinds of tools and not only looking at early cinema, but looking at, say, the first, I don't know, 70 or 80 years of cinema with 
focus, all, uh, almost all of our money wants to focus on the United States. So we we foresee, you know, growth into other other cultures, other national sins, you know, on the horizon. But um, it's it's very interesting, and the 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 big goal overall is to help to inform what the information scientists call uh, the linked data future. If you've used an archive, and I'm sure you have, you know that typically the finding aid will have like a list of titles or something, and you don't know most of them, and oh, by the way, there's human error, and some of them are wrong, and it's better than nothing, but it's it's not entirely helpful as a search aid. But if we can search from within films and across films within a particular collection, or even across an entire archive, or even across multiple archives. And the machines can help us do that in a way that isn't, you know, offensive or blind to, right. you know, important issues like, you know, race and gender and things like that. Um, that is going to be a game changer for archives. I interviewed people you know, I'm sure, uh, the curators of the cinema's first Nasty Women set. And one of the things that they said that really struck me was, you know, archives tend to catalog the very literal. In their case, it's about housemaids. So they put down housemaid. What it doesn't do is say, this is an anarchic comedy in which a housemaid rebels against the household or something like that. It all depends on how the cataloger is thinking about the film that they're cataloging. And they may just not have an interest in the thing that you find interesting. And, and, you know, and the lesson for that, I think it was a leaf who said it was that you just have to watch the films. It sounds like this is kind of a semi solution to that in that you'll have, well, one more, more eyes on the film, but also different ways of sort of saying what's going on in it. Oh, that's completely right. So it's going to be, you know, driven by scholarship, like such as that, that, you know, Maggie and Leaf and, and Laura did. But it's it, it as you're suggesting, it's kind of um, opening the opportunity to cross a lot of bridges, and for sure we'll be, you know, meeting uh, certain kinds of cataloging issues that everybody knows uh, require more attention. You know, cataloging often uses terms that are kind of offensive and things like that. It's its own kind of. Um, historiographic index into how things were described, as you're suggesting. And some of the, you know, some of the, what, what they're doing is absolutely cutting edge, necessary, um, scholarly directed uh, intervention into the representation of sexuality and gender and how that was represented, tended not to be represented. And that's, those are the kinds of insights that will drive scholarship in the 21st century, you know. So they're, they're not exactly using machine reading, but the, the kind of things that they're pointing out, you can immediately see, will start to become important keywords or whatever the, you know, appropriate entryway is into the, the research agenda. Uh, that that many people will be interested in um, 
picking up on and, and taking forward. So that was uh, there was a great moment in my presentation at uh, on the silent screen because those those folks were there for sure. And I showed as an example using the annotation tool this very early uh, AM and B film about a a cook who's working in the kitchen and this you know, burly guy comes in and tries to steal some food and she just wallops him with this big <laughs> rolling pin. And they were in hysterics. How did we not know this? <laughs> You're both developing and enhancing uh, exactly what Elise said, like how to watch these films, right? You, a lot of, it's, it's very interesting pedagogically because a lot of students will look at films of an era such as this and, you know, they move for obvious reasons, they move a little slower. And sometimes uh, they're wondering why do people act so funny. Sometimes the people are acting funny because they're trained professionals. And they were taught in this late 19th century theatrical mode. And they're in the process of changing what they do. You know, The, the other part of pedagogy that I think is important um, for the project is that you're asking people to slow down and really watch what they're watching and become closer to thinking about these images and their relationships, like from an editor's perspective, like why do these things follow and what, what was the significance of this movement? And, and that kind of, you know, granular close analysis of things is I think exactly what, uh, what their project brings to bear and what we really need in this kind of, you know, attention economy to get people to slow down and, and look at things more carefully and, and understand them historically. Now, if somebody wants to use some from, something from this, if say they want to research the paper prints or the biographs, what, uh, how would they do that? Or how will they do that if it's not really ready yet? It, it's it's mostly ready, but we're frankly we're waiting on the scholars to finish their essays. That's okay. that's really the <laughs> the the last uh, the last hurdle. Um, yeah, we've we've gathered these different materials into a fairly recent platform called Airtable, and what Airtable allows us to do is organize the materials in searchable ways, and then. Uh, make those different components searchable between and across the different units. So you'll be able to search uh, Charlie Musser's Edison book in relationship to Paul Spears' production log of AM and B in relationship to the AFI list of all films produced in America at that time in relationship to what's available from the Library of Congress and have the results and then look at some things or recognize which things are not available to be looked at. And in that case, maybe go back to the AM and B exhibitor catalogs and see what those keyframes were and see, you know, it's just going to be a, a incredible opportunity to you know, look for things you already know you want to find and really discover a whole lot of new questions that 
we weren't in a position to ask before. And that'll be available online ultimately? Completely, yeah. Okay. The, all of the outputs are going to be uh, essentially online. Yeah. yeah. And this is accessible to anybody? You don't have to be an accredited scholar attached to an institution or anything like that? No, it'll be available for everybody to 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 do work with some of the materials that we have on our private server. It you know that that does fall into the um, sort of the the copyright allowances that scholars are afforded. Okay. So it's just a lot easier to work with um, with that kind of stuff. But those you know so to give you one more example because this is. Most of the material we work with is uh, is not under copyright. You know, it's not going to be an issue. But in certain instances, I don't know if you know um, Tracy Geisel. Yeah, yeah. Who's been, yeah. You know, her stuff is unbelievable and really inspiring on its own. You know, it looks, I imagine, as good as a new 35-millimeter nitrate print looks. You know, it's really startling. All right, so I should clarify for people that she's digitizing the biograph shorts from original material, maybe including the paper prints for all I know, uh, to make modern high-quality restorations of the early growth of films and other biograph shorts. That's right, that's right. And and restoring them, and she works with, she works with a lot of different archives, you know, whoever has... You know, archival works, right. uh, restoration workers, who has a better element of this scene or whatever. And then they use, you know, some pretty high-powered um, AI software to to take the, the noise out and all that. Sure. Um, you know, that's extraordinary. On its own, it's already um, re-enchanting our relationship with the past. Because, you, you know, especially if you're accustomed to what... <laughs> what sound of films right. have tended to look like for decades and decades. I mean, it takes your breath away. Um, but it also means that those films, because they're so spick and span, are probably open to use by computer vision and machine learning tools than other silent era prints are. We're not trying to... Um, interrupt anybody's revenue stream. <laughs> so if, if she wants to, any any archivist, they tell us, you can use this for your research, but we don't want you to make it public. We're fine with that. We will follow their rules. Um, but but for research purposes, we can utilize them and share them. You know, a very very tight group of people who know better than to share them further. And uh, that's you know one of the the outputs of this right now you mentioned that a book is coming out i already forgot the name of it sorry no no no. it's going to be an online resource and it'll be called the early cinema compendium yeah okay. and that will consist it just sounds of like all a book. of these yeah it does it does and it, and it's published a lot of a lot of our work is published in a digital publishing platform uh from usc called scalar and they call everything a book too <laughs> <It's not mine. laughs> yeah. So yeah, book is fine, but I don't want people to think they're gonna, you know, go on Amazon and buy it. It's gonna be for free online. Okay. And um, and and that means it's it's eminently searchable too. 
So, the, you know, that's that's part of the value for sure. And then there'll be the these essays, and they will appear in uh, in a different but related thing that'll be uh, a quote unquote book uh, via Scalar. Okay. It'll be Airtable plus Scalar. Okay. And eventually, the the uh, Dwight's that will all become part of the early synod compendium too. You know, part of what we do, I guess, is public relations or something, because so many people have no idea how endangered moving image culture is. Right. You know, they see they get they get lost into a, a wormhole on YouTube, and they just assume that everything exists and it's all of it's eternal, and neither one of those assumptions are correct. As you well know, these archivists are really doing such a heroic task in preserving and being responsible to the past. And there's so much we still have yet to learn about the past. And it's it's uh, extraordinary work. Everybody should understand that those are the actual conditions and uh, and do what they can, you know, to you know give to your local archive and pay attention to debates about historiography. You know, one of the, there's an emerging debate, at least you could think about this, I suppose. Um, what Tracy is doing with the biograph films is different from what a lot of computer scientists are doing, which is upgrading things to 4K and making them color and putting the wrong aspect ratio and adding right. sound to them. And really, you know, it's it's. I think there's a baby in the bathwater thing. You know that the the debate can inform. If that is what is enchanting people about the past, I don't want to give that up. But I do want them to understand that that's not actually the history. Yeah. That's somebody doing something else, creating a new digital object that's attractive or engaging. But there's another layer to get to, which is the actual history and how important that is. So it's, a, it's actually, I think, a really compelling, necessary uh, conversation to have moving forward. You know, one of the, you were talking about, like, uh, TV news footage from the 70s as being one of the areas. Uh, obviously, a yeah. lot of interest yeah. in that time period, politically and historically. Um, Definitely. But I also think... I mean, there's almost nobody throwing nitrate film out at this point. <laughs> you know, what what survived this far has mostly made it somewhere. Uh, but a TV station could change owners and just throw out a decade's worth of, of valuable footage like that because it's on three-quarter inch tape or two-inch tape or something that was a extinct format at this point i mean that's in some ways it's the more recent stuff that's at more risk i agree with you 100 percent, and that's you know that that's why we that's why i called this the media ecology project because we we have to make everybody understand that this is this material is fated you know it's got a lifespan and for it to continue to be viable and accessible it takes a lot of work and it takes, you know, dedicated people. And the 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 whole infrastructure of the archives needs to become stronger and larger. And if if we can help to, you know, raise awareness about that and demonstrate the value of these materials and see, you know, not only the things that people are already, you know, 
partially aware that might be interesting and important, but also recognize how many how many avenues of this history matter so much, but we haven't seen them yet. That's uh, that's the that's the really inspiring part and the necessary part. A link for the Media Ecology Project will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Rob Stone, Ian Christie, Tammy Williams, and Mark Williams, no relation. And to Dwight Cleveland. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover us too. Thanks.